Rachel, thank you so much for coming on to Coastal Catch-Ups. How are you? I'm good. All good here. How are you? Yes, all good. All good. Can't complain. Um, I was wondering if you could start by just telling us a bit about yourself, what you've been up to uh, in the past, what you're up to these days. Okay, so uh, I'm Rachel Miller. Um, I'll, I'll say Dr. Rachel Miller. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, I am working as a marine conservation officer with Ulster Wildlife. Um, and at the minute, we are working on primarily native oyster restoration. So, yeah, we have two really great native oyster nurseries set up in Bangor and Glenarm. Um, so, yeah, we have a group of volunteers that work at that site. And, yeah, it's, it's a great project be involved with and that is funded through DERA. Uh, we have future funding that is allowing us to take that further and hopefully can lead to really exciting seabed deployments of native oysters in and around Northern Ireland. Um, uh, we also are working on seagrass and salt marsh projects in the future. So that is where we're at. And I'll maybe just I'll, I'll tell you a wee bit about the native oyster, um, sure. uh, the projects itself. So basically, we call them nurseries. It's basically like a brood stock of oysters. So we keep them in cages and hang them beneath the pontoons in marinas. So, um, like I said, it's in Bangor Marina at the minute and in Glenarm Marina, and they are attached. Just hang below it. Some of them are under under the actual slots in it or just hanging off the edge um, and we keep them there just because it means people can't lift them and get at them it's just safe and out of the way um, and it means that our volunteers and our staff can get down and we can access them and keep to our permits so we have to have aquaculture licenses to keep oysters um in in these areas um and we also we go down and we monitor them by checking their mortality we also check their growth um just important to keep track that everything's healthy and happy we monitor the biodiversity as well um and like i said all, we have amazing volunteers that join us weekly bi-weekly and we all go down to the pontoons and have a right laugh and measure oysters so it's it's really great and it's great to get people involved it's um I, I suppose you would say it's more small scale restoration than you know it's not massive we have in Bangor around 700 oysters and in Glenarm we have about 800 oysters so it's not massive we're not like big oyster farmers uh and we just yeah we're we're just monitoring them and keeping track of all that and hopefully we can expand it out to larger scale like I said seabed deployments would be really exciting for Northern Ireland there is loads of oyster projects all across England Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland sadly is probably lagging behind in any restoration programs at all um yeah the the wild oysters really kicked off this sort of technique of putting the oysters in the marine harbors and marinas and you know having them accessible but not too accessible for people to lift them and sell them i think an oyster nowadays can go for about 3.50 a pop so i should probably shouldn't have said that that's it they'll all be gone they'll be gone in the morning i'm in the fence <laughs> <laughs>
Um, so, so yeah, hopefully it all, it's a really good engagement tool and get, gets people, local people involved and hopefully it'll lead to bigger projects. And at the minute we have funding to put in one native oyster nursery along our coast somewhere for the next five years. So you'll see many more of them. So we'll be creating a great network. And like I said, it's a broodstock, hopefully they spawn and that larvae floats away and settles somewhere nice and they can just create their natural habitats, you know, back where they should be and create oyster reefs all, all around Belfast Lock or in and around Glenarm, the Antrim coastline. Very good. So what's the story behind the native oyster? If you were to show, show me an oyster, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference between. Yeah, between the two. Um, what? What's happened to them? Why 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 are these conservation programs needed now? And um, what's their story? Yeah, so basically the native oyster, also known as the European flat oyster, Austria edulis, is um I'll just maybe describe the two the differences to the two. Uh -huh. So uh, they're like a flat oyster, um, that's kind of rounded around the edge, is quite smooth. It's like a brownish, yellowish tinge to it. Um, and they're yeah, they are like they're the ones, I suppose the Pacific oysters are the ones that people would identify as an oyster. It's that teardrop shape. They're quite sharp looking, chunky. They've got a wee purpley tinge to them. And they are the, they're the in, invasive non-native species that we have here in Northern Ireland. Um, and they are mostly what is farmed here and in the UK. Okay. Uh, the native oyster is a slow grower. So it you know, it's not as, you know, you know, you wouldn't get your money's worth maybe out of farming them as, yes. as, as you would with the Pacifics. Um, but the, yeah, so the native oyster itself um, used to be prolific. It used to be a, a prolific oyster fishery across Northern Ireland and all our sea locks, um, Loch Foyle, Carlingford, Larne, uh, Belfast Loch. Uh, but it was basically just overfished. Um, so by the mid 19th century, you know, it was basically near extinction. They, or they they basically said that, you know, they had to close the fisheries because there was just, there was none left. They were just dredged all up. Um, so since then, it's been a 95% decline mm -hmm. on the native oyster. And there is pockets of wild populations in Strangford Lock that have sort of survived. And, and you know, that's down to different projects. And there was, I think it was the... The Fishermen's Association uh, in Strangford Lock many, many years ago, uh, you know, tried to do a similar, you know, broodstock uh, technique and it, it did work. Um, the broodstock settled on the eastern side of Strangford Lock. So that, you know, that's where you do get the wee populations and the wee pockets of them still existing. Um, but is... yeah, they... Sorry, Rachel, go ahead. Um, no, I was just going to say, like, they just declined really and then we haven't helped matters with pollution of our waterways and um just basically habitat loss you know but just so many positives that come with them that's why we really should be promoting them and they're they're a priority species in the uk and ireland and you know we're currently going through a biodiversity crisis and a climate crisis and they really tick the box for you know solving some of those like a nature-based solution to solve some of those problems so those sorts of 
nature-based solutions we're talking carbon capture uh, yeah yeah so uh, they are a wee bit uh oysters are a bit hurt and miss with the carbon capture because they are a shellfish and they are an animal so they are producing carbon as well as capturing carbon in their calcium carbonate shells so it's really yeah you, there is I, I read a paper recently there uh but it was actually on blue mussels mm -hmm. and it suggests that there is a slight positive for the carbon capture side okay. but it just depends like it yeah it's, there's a lot of factors to consider but they're really important for biodiversity and their ecosystem services so they improve the water quality so well they can filter one mature oyster can filter 200 liters which is like a bathtub of water a day mm. um so if you imagine if you had like hundreds of them on a big reef you know taking in all that algae and everything else all the organic nutrients in the water mm. and just it makes it you know the water it improves water clarity then for your seagrass and your kelp and the, those species that are photosynthesizing and it helps them and they're also great for carbon capture so yeah it's a real win-win and you know they create such uh dynamic structures that you know they're like homes and nursery grounds to fish and other other wee species so yeah they're just positive all around so we should be putting them out everywhere and they were for rachel <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um oh god that's that's awesome um so the frets i always wondered so you always hear about oysters being really good for water quality um but there's obviously a threshold so they obviously can't if you pour in tons and tons of sewage yeah well, obviously a threshold where they can't cope and um i suppose that's where you're you know the food stand like if you're talking about oyster farms like that's yeah. where the food standards come in like the quality of the oysters yeah. there is well that's the thing yeah that's the thing like oysters can obviously withstand they're an intertidal well they're subtidal and intertidal species you know you can get them in different parts of the shoreline but they can they have so much of a tolerance range for loads of aspects like temperature and 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 you know obviously they're what they can handle pollution wise um but they do take in a lot of uh you know nutrients have been known even to take in some plastics and then coat them in mucus and then excrete them and bury them basically into the seabed again so they are pretty robust um but obviously like you said they they just can't handle like a lot thrown at them and probably a lot thrown at them at once um i said there at the start they were you know slow growers and you know that's probably why it's like a trickier for them to settle is because you know you might be losing like the more mature ones that are reproducing and then you might you know you're getting that public population dynamics is getting a wee bit messed up with everything but yeah um you mentioned about public engagement and volunteers working on this project how important yeah. is that and um it <laughs> going forward I assume it's going to be a bigger factor I don't know is there like citizen science projects to get people involved and for anyone listening that hasn't heard of citizen science it's basically like anyone being taught the basics and being able to survey and uh, monitor and stuff like that so is there any plans for that with your work um yeah so we um obviously need 
volunteers because we have so many oysters like you know it and and it is an engagement tool it is great to get people down you know whether that be schools or corporate groups or you know just just local members of the community getting involved um we need people that are keen to get down get dirty because it is a messy job and um yeah we we have got a brilliant group of volunteers um at Bangor that are well established now for for nearly it's coming on nearly a year that they have been there and we have went on shore walks with them to do surveys you know really super keen to get involved in general citizen science not just oysters um and then you know some of these people come from marine backgrounds you know whether they have boats or they've been divers before or you know some people just want to get out and you know see what's around them uh, and and uh, some of them are also students as well that are, are just needing experience you know to to try and pursue their careers into these fields um but in regards to like projects we have a lot of placement students at the minute that are starting more individual quite unique projects looking at different you know looking at mainly we've got uh, a placement student concentrating on the use of copper copper tape around cages to reduce biofouling we have a student also looking at the basically the difference between wild what has settled on wild population of oyster shells and what what settles on the shell when they're actually within our nurseries and is there any difference in the biodiversity there um and we yeah so we have quite a quite a range of we projects on the go and we hopefully will expand obviously when we get more native, native oyster nurseries on the go there'll be more projects coming up but they're more placement student focused but we would love to do more shore surveys, et cetera, with our volunteers, because it's great just to get out and see what's actually out there. And yeah. I'm sure, um, just taking Bangor Marina as an example, I take it people have been involved there that had no idea or about the different oysters and that sort of thing. I'm sure it's good. Yeah, to yeah. That as well. Yeah, we have like, you know, we have had people that are maybe from more of the terrestrial side of volunteering with Ulster Wildlife and they've seen this and they're like, oh, that, you know, that looks interesting. And, you know, they always say, you know, you know, green spaces are obviously really good for your mental health, but so are blue spaces. And, you know, people seen that, and, you know, they would like to be by the water, maybe not during the winter when it's like snowing and hailstoning on you and you're sitting on a pontoon but everyone like you know it is good fun all together and everyone's learning and everyone's learning new things and I actually think the volunteers know more than me now so they could probably some of them have been buying books on oysters I think they could actually just take it over now and just run it themselves and we've also had so we had a school down at the launch for Glenarm um we had a local primary school sea view integrated primary school and it was just great to show them what is right on their doorstep their school is overlooking the marina and you know it's just so good to have people down to be able to see you know this is actually what is naturally occurring in the waters around here and just to give them a wee bit of education on that yeah brilliant the future generation of marine, biolog marine biologists <laughs> Very good. Um, well, that's all really exciting, Rachel. And I, I like 
I'm excited to see if the small scale nurseries and stuff like that. I'm excited to see when it goes larger scale and the bigger big scale. Big yeah, scale. yeah, big scale. So we at the minute we're at the stage of trying to figure out how we can do that in Northern Ireland, what sort of licensing and permits are required because it's never been done before. It's, yeah, it's sort of like we're still at that very early stage and people are obviously quite cautious and weary about it, but they have done great work over in England and the Solent, they've been doing seascapes. So that's with salt marsh, seagrass and oysters. And, you know, they're sort of, a great example to go back to to show that you know they're just doing that across there you know we can do something similar here yeah yeah um no that's that's interesting i think we'll maybe come back to oysters but if you don't yeah. mind i'm going to park oysters for now uh, <laughs> yes that's fine <laughs> so i wanted to ask you have been you, well you did a phd i wanted to yeah. ask about that how you find it what was uh subject uh if you could tell us a bit about yeah, that yeah i was actually telling the placement students today about it um they probably didn't even want to hear it but i was telling them anyway <laughs> um so i studied marine biology at queen's um i had originally uh went to study at dundee university uh to study environmental science and dropped out and then was like oh i need to pick something else to do now so a year later I was trying to decide what to do and I wanted something exciting that was gonna actually entertain me in a way so I was looking at marine biology or archaeology and yeah got on to both so I ended up going for marine biology and yeah so did that degree towards the end of it I had my undergraduate project and I was looking at the six degrees of forces on kelp so took kelp it was quite experimental took kelp and stuck it in the wave tank at the david care uh, in a force transducer and basically was measuring all the forces on it and the directions and that led on to then a phd opening came up with my supervisor at the time louise craigting and she basically was like do you want to just continue this line of work on in so sort of went to the dark side of engineering trying to be an engineer a pretend engineer so yeah that was that was how that all came about and my phd was titled the influence of hydrodynamics on gee it's quite lengthy on the growth erosion and biomechanical properties of the kelp laminaria digitata had to really think there it's probably wrong <laughs> it's probably not even the title um in, ter in terms of hydrodynamics is that like storm events like looking at their vulnerability to storms or so we actually used um strangford lock as my sort of overall base site because obviously there's so, so much variation and the hydrodynamics is so diverse there and there was kelp everywhere like there's kelp all along the shoreline but it's so different and it looks different as well. So like it could be the same species, but they look completely different. The morphology is so diverse. Um, so we just decided to stick to Strangford Log and we were basically trying to pick sites that were hydrodynamically different and we needed to prove that they were different because it's quite common in a lot of biology to just be like a site is exposed or sheltered and you know there's no measurement of it but when you're in this 
strange world between engineering and marine biology the engineers are like you need to have this you know nailed down you know you can't just say it's exposed how exposed um so i ended up putting out adcps um and some other instruments along my sites that i had picked and was able to define if somewhere was i classified them sort of as low wave low current high current high wave and a comp like they were all like a big combination of things so yes i had quite a few different field sites i think in total i had 12 to begin with and then we had to drop one because my adcp i don't think we could actually get that out where it was meant to be it was just kind of out on the arts peninsula irish sea place Okay. I think we might have lost one of our ADCPs, but we did get that back. But I think it might have been dredged or trolled over at one point. For anyone listening who has no idea what an ADCP is, what what does it do? It's uh, so an ADCP is an acoustic Doppler current profiler. Were you checking that? I feel like you looked down there just to double check that I was saying it right. No, I just um, I'm, so... I'm conscious that there's people people that uh i because i'm still bad listen hearing acronyms and i'm like what oh yeah yeah google yeah uh, so it's just to, just to make it clear for the yeah but um so an adcp actually sends like a ping into the water column mm -hmm. and then it can do all its calculations that i can't do and works out what's happening the wave height so it can give you your significant wave height or just your wave height and you can get your your current flow and your velocity you know your velocity so gives you like all the information you need just to just to sort of define your sites so i was able to do that and obviously some of my other environmental conditions temperature nutrients mm -hmm. and then from then once i had those sites sort of chosen and all set in stone um i was able to tag my kelp so i had them all tagged and numbered and then i could measure the growth and the erosion and then afterwards i think i upset all the by bringing in salty seawater kelp into the the concrete lab area of the David Care, um, and I was using their tensile testing machine uh, to test the strength of the kelp. <laughs> so yeah, it was quite yeah, a it's I mean, qu quite a mix. They're very nice. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, they probably just thought I was some crazy kelp lady coming in <laughs> with boxes of kelp, and they used to come in at like ridiculous hours it would be like i could be in first thing in the morning having collected it in strangford lock or you know it could be 10 o'clock at night i'm dropping off boxes of kelp so yeah but uh it was good fun good fun very good so after your phd then uh what happened i know you had a jump in australia um what yes so doing? so after my phd um it's very anticlimactic when you have your PhD, like it just, you hand it in and then someone's like, yeah, that's, that's all good. Very good. And then that's just it really. Um, so I applied for a couple of jobs and I applied for one out in Australia, like you said, um, and got it. It's really super surprised I got it. So it was a, so it was like a postdoc, well, like a senior research officer position, um, and it was only for six months. So everyone thought I was absolutely mad packing up my life. And I was out in Australia within three weeks of saying, yes, I'll take it without even having a contract in my hand. Um, and 
yeah, it started that job at the university. I arrived on the Sunday, went to a rugby match with some of the, the ones from the uni on the Sunday evening and started on the Monday morning. So it was all like a whirlwind, but absolutely brilliant. And I was working on seagrass restoration out there, which was new to me completely. Um, just coming from working on kelp for like three and a half years to then having to learn all about seagrass on the airplane over. <laughs> so it was a bit crazy. Um, but yeah, brilliant, brilliant experience. And I got to do some really interesting, interesting stuff out there. And it was, I think it, the actual seagrass nursery that was at the university there was, was actually the first in Australia. So it was great to be part of that. And, you know, there were so many brilliant sites all around the southern end of the Great Barrier Reef. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's great. Take me back. Uh, so you did a lot of diving then when you were in Australia? No, no, I didn't actually dive when I was in Australia at all, mainly because I didn't have my dive buddy. Okay. So I just did snorkeling mainly. Um, and especially like where we were doing a lot of the seagrass work was easier just to snorkel. It was relatively shallow. Yeah. Um, so we were like, that was fine for snorkeling. And then just when I finished up and I was traveling around, I did just snorkeling because it was the Great Barrier Reef. And it, you know, it was so clear. You didn't even need to dive on it really. Um, but yeah, no, I did more diving during my PhD in Strangford Lock, just, you know, putting out ADCPs and equipment, mm -hmm. quick dashes down, put something out, back up again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and the, the seagrass, um, so, well, you're obviously involved in the seagrass stuff back in Northern Ireland now. Um, yeah. What are the benefits to seagrass and uh, what, why is it so important to have those habitats protected? Yeah, so the seagrass, we have actually some really great seagrass beds here. Um, one of them up at Waterfoot was obviously that that's why that is designated as an MCZ. So, um, you know, we also have Bally Henry Bay, which is recognized as like a really popular dive spot for the seagrass. Um, and I recently dived on that and it was, you know, it, it's in really, you know, relatively good condition. I dived I suppose February time, it's hard to tell if it's like just because it's winter that it looks like that or, you know, um, but seagrass, yeah, it's like like we were talking about the carbon capture idea, you know, it, it stores away so much in the sediment um, and also just nursery grounds for other other critters out there, marine creatures. So it, it, it's just, yeah, it's, it's super and it's really like the poster child of blue carbon at the minute it's like super hot topic and we don't really like we do have obviously maps of seagrass in and around northern ireland but it would be great to keep those like monitored and and i do know that um sea search ni do a lot of diving around different different places and dive hotspots in northern ireland and obviously keep track and try and do a bit of monitoring and and sort of mapping of those areas because i'm there i'm certain that there is areas that are just not mapped yet um and obviously that needs to be addressed um maybe before restoration sort of kicks off it's it's really getting that nailed down you know where is the seagrass and what condition is it in and then 
we can look at doing some restoration work. Uh, but we have, so outside of Ulster Wildlife, I have been working on a project that was, it is funded by, it's funded by DERA as well. I think it was a challenge fund mm -hmm. um, it, with Newry, Morn and Down District Council. So that was looking at eagle moorings. So they installed eagle moorings to trial different types. So there's the sterling type and then the advanced mooring system. So two different types um, and it's to stop basically the chain of uh, just of a normal mooring block dropping down and dragging along and causing scarring in in seagrass meadows. So that obviously tears them all up and creates this like area of just barren sediment that's just getting every time the tide changes or the water drops, you know, that it's just getting, you know, messed around. Um, so these ecomarins should hopefully reduce that, keeps the chains up. There might be more boys on, on them to keep them the chain held up or some of them have like I think it's the sterling one is like a bungee cord effect so yeah. it like moves with the tide as it goes mm -hmm. um and yeah we we dived on those and one of them was I think the boy one of the boys had gone on it so it hadn't really worked like it hadn't caused any scarring but it hadn't really worked mm -hmm. and then also the other one um, it, it worked great and the seagrass was all around the marine block right up until the block right up until the edge and I think that's something that especially in Strangford Lock is really important there's so many boats in there mm. and there's so many like areas that are probably damaged that could be somehow repaired or if we just change our marine blocks mm. that could that could work but that's a Newry Morning Down District Council project at the minute that they have ongoing so I think that's for five years as well they are going to be investigating that very good no I only actually I, I can't remember if I said this in my first podcast but I actually came across that issue when I saw a drone shot of a seagrass bed with mooring uh, boats being moored in it and then you yeah. just see the circles and you just yeah. see um yeah, just, just sand basically. It just looks sand. Yeah. Um, do you think there should be more awareness and education of boat users to kind? Because of, I know there's, well, to take Strangford Lock, for example, there's a no anchor zone from. Yeah. Uh, well, if you, if you know the Lock on the island south to near East Down Yacht Club, like there's a there's a no anchor zone there. It's a, yeah, it's like a closed zone completely. Yeah. yeah. You think there should be more awareness? I know, like boat users should have, they should be responsible and know where they can anchor and where they're not. But do you think there should be yeah. more education and awareness made out of these? Yeah, I, I definitely think there should be more. It should be definitely highlighted. So maybe there's people there that you know really want to protect the marine environment and just don't know what's beneath the surface. You know, maybe they're always boating and they don't dive or they don't snorkel. Um, so I think even being able to show where the seagrass beds are and and i think they just happen to be where people mirror their boats it just is like that is seems to just match up so it's quite difficult because you don't want to take away people from their other you know activities um so it's just getting that balance and maybe those ecomarines that's that's the balance we need it just might achieve that um yeah so you'll have to get yourself an ecomarine for your boat absolutely <laughs> 
Yeah, I know a lot of people who would be willing to would probably be willing to do that as well. Um, yeah. Like everyone who uses a boat around the coast appreciates being on the water because of the habitat yeah. and all the rest. So like if there's anyone there who doesn't appreciate that and who's out on the boat enjoying it, I yeah, you kind of question whether if yeah, whatever. Yeah. Where's the sense in that? But um, yeah, no, that's interesting. So Rachel, you mentioned about you dived um placing ADCPs and stuff like that. Um, where is the best place you've dived? Yeah, so I was hoping you'd ask me this so that I could uh just mm -hmm. boast where I've dived. So yes. I'd probably say the best place I've dived is Indonesia or Hawaii. We'll throw in Hawaii as well there. So yeah, we like, like obviously it's lovely to dive in Strangford Lock, um, but obviously you're wearing a dry suit and it's chilly. Um, it might not be chilly at the minute actually with this marine heat wave or the marine heat wave we've had. Um, but uh, yeah, it was just lovely to do like nice wetsuit dives on nice coral reefs and seeing loads of interesting things diving in Indonesia and Hawaii uh, but obviously you see nice things in Strangford Lock as well and you can dive the inner Lee's wreck and that's really cool to get around a wreck um, but probably yeah I'd, I'd probably say Hawaii was was my best dive it was just great fun it was me and my dive buddy Patrick were at a conference in in Hawaii and then we basically went out for a day trip and did a couple of dives uh I think it was Horseshoe Reef it's called and there was like an octopus and there was squid uh turtles yeah just just amazing really just to get out and be be with them and obviously it's nice and warm so just apart from the seasickness it was choppy very choppy and is there anywhere else on your list to dive? Any on the bucket list? Um, bucket list dives. I'd probably say Tasmania would be nice. I'd love to do some kelp forest dives. Tasmania or even, yeah, Monterey Bay, something like that in California. I'd love to do kelp kelp forest dives. That's it. So that I wrote... Is that the kelp, like the vertical stalks? Or yeah, like... yeah, like the supers, like they just look like massive forests. Yeah. Um, yeah. But underwater, just, yeah, that would be amazing. But I think, yeah, I think there is, there's obviously ones down in uh, South Africa, uh, but I do think great white sharks use them as feeding grounds and whatnot. So <laughs> might be Pick a bit scary. Biologist for dinner. scary. <laughs> yeah, so... But yeah, that'd be really cool, cool yeah. to to do that. Um, and then just to finish up, I want that wanted to ask you about uh, any advice you have for aspiring marine scientists or biologists or anyone in the field that is remotely interested in this sort of stuff. Um, any advice from what you've been doing? Yeah, so I would probably like you know obviously to get into it if you're not already in like a degree pathway to do this is basically to get involved in volunteering where you can in in any projects i know obviously the wildlife trusts just across the uk do obviously loads of volunteering projects and we're doing the oysters so if anyone would like to help out with all of those yes brilliant um 
and all there's yeah there's loads of different different projects that are ongoing there's obviously i said about sea search as well so if you're into diving or snorkeling you know you can get involved with those projects um but yeah i think that is the way if you're not already in a degree pathway that's maybe gonna open doors for you um and yeah it just depends what you kind of want to do obviously you can go into consultancy or you can go into engos or academia um but yeah that's yeah if you could do that um i'm trying to think what but i would just advise people really just to take risks and you know try something new like I think going away and working somewhere new, a different country is just, it It kind of, it, it's just ca character building in a way. It, you know, it's difficult. You're, you're away from home, you're away from everyone you know, and you just have to do things yourself and, and get on with it. And I think it's, it's exciting. And yes, I highly recommend just taking a risk. And I seem to do those quite a lot at the minute. <laughs> It's like the the three month contract or the contract is really yeah it? yeah it's very good yeah. yeah like everyone thought I was mad but I just think that was just really just had to do it like how could I turn down a position like that in Australia sure yeah, if it didn't work out yeah come home yeah absolutely yeah, you can very, always come home very good. Well, listen, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on to Coastal Catch-Ups. Um, it's been great to hear about your work with Ulster Wildlife, uh, the research stuff you've done with your PhD, uh, the plans for, yeah. The, I, I'm excited about the, the oyster restoration and I'm looking forward to keeping tabs on that and seeing what happens there. Um, so, yeah, just want to thank you again. And, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on yeah. Coastal Catch-Ups. <laughs>